John chapter 1, verses 19. I'll start with verses 19 through 28, and it says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, so what we see here is the religious leaders uh, send a group of priests and Levites to interrogate John. Okay, now, now these were really the, the spiritual guardians, right, of, of, of everything that was done and said uh, spiritually in those days. The Levites assisted the priests in their duties. And so they're sent uh, by the, the Jewish religious leaders to interrogate John because what had happened is his powerful preaching and his popularity uh, had, had just grown to such a degree that literally they were forced to respond in some way and to investigate who is this guy because there was there was there was it was mysterious he uh, there was a lot of mystery around who he actually was and there was also rumors and people knew uh, that he had had a supernatural birth I shared this a couple weeks ago, how his parents, one was a priest, Zacharias, and his wife, Elizabeth, and an angel shows up and tells them, now they're old, she's considered barren, can't have kids. The angel Gabriel shows up and says, no, you're going to have a child. And, and, and as uh, the angel Gabriel announces that to, to uh, the priest that he's going to have a child, uh, he's filled with fear as the angel's speaking, and the angel tells him, your child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. In Luke chapter 115, it says that. And then he goes on to explain more about what this child's going to be. In verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, he says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, Zacharias is hearing this, and, and, and one, he's freaked out because this angel is, is talking to him, uh, so he's just in fear. But then, this seems so ridiculous, what the angel is telling him, that he doesn't believe it. He doubts it. And he verbalizes this doubt. And because he verbalizes this doubt, God says, okay, and takes his voice. So he loses his voice until the child is born and until he 
out of obedience, names the child John, which he was called to name him. So he names this child John, and as he names the child John, he is able to communicate, and everybody's around. He, the, the father starts praising God for this, and it literally talks about how everybody was filled with fear and awe, and everybody's talking in the whole countryside, in the hillside there, and they're speaking about this, and they're saying, I wonder what this child is going to be like, because it was obvious the hand of the Lord was on this child. And John the Baptist grows, he develops, and then he kind of disappears into the desert, and and we don't really know all that was happening in the desert, but uh, he's given his calling, he, his, his public ministry is initiated and he starts appearing in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people just started flocking to hear him. Guys, Israel had been waiting four centuries for God to send them a prophet. And so as John comes on the scene and he's just preaching in this dynamic way, this convicting way, uh, people are just, they're thirsty for it. They're desiring it. So they keep going out to listen to him. And, and, And as we pick up in John chapter one, verse 19, he is really at the peak of his ministry when we're picking up here. Uh, there, there's, there's literally people um, flooding out of Jerusalem all around the area to listen to him, and he has just baptized Jesus. And, and right now in this moment, as we're going to pick up here, uh, people were even starting to wonder, is he the Messiah? We see in Luke chapter 3, 15, it says, as the people were in expectation And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So so the Jewish authorities, they're alarmed. They hear about this guy. They're getting word. And and, and then even for them, more fearful. And and what leads to them more being just like, we got to find out who this guy is, is people are starting to say, he's the Messiah. And so this has huge religious ramifications, political ramifications, And so they send out this group to determine who his identity actually was. Who is this guy? And the first question they ask him is just simply, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? That's what they kick off with here. And, 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 and we see that they likely assume that he considered himself the Messiah since he immediately, it says, let them know that he's not the promised Messiah. So immediately when they ask him who he is, uh, from how this is worded, it would appear that they already assumed he was going to say he's the Messiah. So he says in response, hey, just so you know, I'm not the Messiah. And so he puts that one to bed. Uh, but then they ask John if he's Elijah. Now, that seems like an odd question. Okay, since, since Elijah was an Old Testament prophet dead for hundreds of years. But what they had in mind was the prophecy of Malachi. In Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
So the Jews expected Elijah himself to return in bodily form just before the Messiah returned to establish his earthly kingdom. So they're like, hey, are you Elijah? Are you here? Now, this question, uh, based upon their understanding and based upon the attributes of John, it actually kind of made sense. Because when you study uh, even their um, their looks, the, like the, the similarities um, are, are, are pretty incredible when you look at it. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it describes John the Baptist. And it says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now listen to them describe Elijah in in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. It says, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So we see that visually and based upon what they had read about Elijah, this guy looks exactly like him and they sound the same because their message was very similar. They were both very bold about preaching against sin, about calling the people to repentance and calling out those who had the seat of influence religiously over the people that were following them. And so there was a lot of shared similarities there. But when you look at it, you know, John wasn't Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Next, they asked John, are you the prophet? See, they had in mind the prophecy of Moses about a prophet out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, uh, where, where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So they're thinking, hey, maybe you're this person, the prophet. But they had missed the point of this prophecy. The prophet was actually the Messiah. That's who Moses is talking about. We see in the book of Acts that Peter and then afterwards Stephen uh, both condemned the religious leaders at that time because they not only missed the prophet, but they killed the prophet when they crucified Jesus. Now, He's not either of these things, right? They're like, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? So now they're frustrated. And they finally ask, who are you? Because we need something to to say. We need something to give to those people who sent us to ask about who you are. And so, and, and they literally say, tell us about yourself. Okay, so we need to know something. Tell us about who you are. Now, you know, the, we look at this situation, and, and, and for some of us, we are very maybe proud of where we're at now, where we've arrived, our occupation. Um, and, and we sometimes will go into conversations going, I can't wait for them to ask me what I do. Or I can't wait for, for my opportunity to share about what I've accomplished in life or what I've done. They're essentially uh, inviting John to tell them how great he is. And so he's got this opportunity here because they're, they're finally just, who are you? We need to know something. Tell us about yourself. And, and so here's this opportunity for him to say, hey, let me tell you about my birth. Let me tell you about um, before time how God, uh, literally, I was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of my mother. Let, let me tell you about all these things um, that, that God has done in my life and, and how great I am, how powerful I am. Uh, let, let's talk about that. No, 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 no. This, that's not at all what happens. Rather uh, than claiming to be someone important, he just humbly referred to himself as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
right? This is his chance. Tell him how amazing he is. But his humility here is reminiscent of Paul in Ephesians 3.8 when Paul said, I am the very least of all the saints. But you guys, he's, he's quoting, John's quoting here, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And, and, and all four gospels quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and they correlate it to John the Baptist, where it was prophesied that a forerunner would appear to announce the coming of Christ. And John stated that he was that forerunner or the voice who was predicted his role was to prepare God's people for the coming salvation through Jesus. So then they ask, okay, so you're none of those guys. Why then are you baptizing? If you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, by what authority do you have to baptize people? Now, John again answered by directing their attention away from himself and on to Jesus. Okay, this is the common thing with John. Instead of defending his baptizing ministry, he acknowledged its, its limitations, right? He says, I just baptize in water. Like, it's, it's almost like a letdown. I just baptize uh, in water. But among you, he says, stands one you do not know. Okay, now, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders uh, they would baptize Gentiles who wanted to adopt the Jewish faith. So as an as a, um, a indication, uh, as a public declaration of them choosing uh, to join the Jewish faith, they would baptize these Gentiles. Okay, But John is baptizing Jews. And so this shocked them. Right? Because they viewed the Jews as already God's kingdom people. So they didn't need to be baptized. But here's John on the scene. He's preaching repentance and all this to these Jews, and he's baptizing them. And they're like, You can't do that. Like, they're good. What are you doing? But John, what he was doing is baptizing those who wanted to testify publicly that they were repenting from their sin and waiting by faith for the promised Messiah. So, so he's baptizing these people who are understand that, the understanding that their sin has separated them from a perfect and holy God, and there's a Messiah that, that is the only one who can bridge that gap and make them right um, and forgive that sin. And they're saying, I am repenting of this, and I am going to live in expectancy, in anticipation of the Savior to come. And in light of that, John is baptizing them. Paul uh, talks about this in Acts uh, 19.4 when it says, and Paul said, John, and he's talking about John the Baptist, baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. So his authority to baptize was an extension of his calling to prepare the people for Jesus' coming. Guys, before you embrace Jesus, you have to address and acknowledge the sin that is in you, the sin that is in your life. 
See, sometimes we try to just make Jesus like this, just, just like, oh, he's just the answer to all your problems, to your financial problems, your health problems, your situation, your mental, emotional problems. Jesus is just the answer to all those things. But if you don't first understand your sin, how in the world can you understand your need for a savior? If I don't understand the separation between me and a perfect and holy God, if, if I don't even think that exists, why do I need Jesus? What is Jesus going to do for me? And so as John is preaching, there is a reason he's bringing them to the fork in the road going, man, you got to repent for this in anticipation of the Savior. You got to deal with this disconnect. You can't save you. The law can't save you, but the Messiah can, and he's coming. Oh, wait, by the way, he's already here. And, and as they're thinking, like as John's speaking, we see all throughout the gospels, we see people just cut to the core of their heart. They're, they're listening, they're hearing, they're literally asking him, what do I do with this? Like, what do I do? I see this evil, I see this sin in me. How do I make this right? That's what they're asking him. Before you embrace Jesus, you gotta address this. Throughout this conversation, though, you guys, John's humility stands out. Once again, when they ask him who he is, he tells them who he's not. He doesn't draw attention to himself, but he directs it to Jesus. When they ask him what right he has to baptize, he doesn't defend himself. He points to Jesus saying, I'm not the one you need to know about. <laughs> That's who you need to know about. I'm a lowly servant. He says, unworthy even to buckle Christ's sandal. He's the one you need to know. That is the most menial task there is, is to buckle that sandal. And I'm not even worthy of that. He's who you need to learn about. He's who you need to know. And, and, and we think about just uh, in our own lives and, and just the church as a whole, our goal as a church, as individuals, has to be to point people to Jesus. That's what, that's what, that's what we have to do. That's, the, that's our point. Everything we say and do should testify to him, pointing others to him, not ourselves. Guys, we're not the answers. When you point and direct everything back to you, look what I've done, look what I said, look at the ministry I've accomplished, you are putting yourself uh, in, you are replacing the Savior. So now people are looking to you to be their Savior. They're looking for you to be their answer. You're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. We're not the answer, but we know him who is. And so that's who we're called to, to point people to. Guys, I, I was reading this and I just felt like, man, we have done a disservice to God's word. We have been, uh, I would just say as a whole in our culture, we have been elevating and highlighting the wrong people and the wrong things in people. I think we're really guilty here. I mean, we have done a disservice to God's word because we have been so focused and so in love with elevating a gifting, a, a, a person, um, um, a, a way people do things that we're totally negating humility. And when I just look at this interaction with John the Baptist, his humility is off the charts, okay? When you look at Jesus, 
His humility is off the charts. When you look at Paul over and over and over again, you see humility. And yet in our culture today, I see, look at me, look at that gift, look at that influence, look at that quote, and, and, we, and we lift these things up and we're downplaying the very thing that the Bible says, that's what you lift up. That's what you model. That's what you go after. It's humility. It's humility. And listen, humble people won't tell you they're humble. So if someone ever says, well, I'm just a humble, but hmm, not anymore. <laughs> they won't tell you that. Instead of asking, how do I increase my influence? I should be asking, how do I increase his influence? That's what John was focused on. We keep going in verses 29 through 34. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, uh, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Oh, I love that. So the very next day, he's been interrogated. They've asked all these questions. They leave. They're probably confused. And, and the very next day, John sees Jesus coming to him. He's approaching him. And he immediately, consistently with his lifestyle, consistently with his mission, he immediately turns all the attention, all the focus to Jesus. And, and what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he says, Jesus is coming. Everybody, everybody. And he's got crowds. He's got people from everywhere to see him, to hear him. Which, guys, that probably felt pretty good. But he's so humble. He's so in tune with his mission, his purpose, that here comes Jesus. People don't know about his miraculous birth. He was born somewhere else. In fact, ah, my, I don't even think she was married. All these things. But no, John, miraculous birth, all these things. There He goes, look at that guy. That is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we look at that, and, and I don't know about you, but every time I see the word lamb in the Bible, I'm not going, ooh. Like when I hear Lion of Judah about Jesus, I go, yeah. In fact, we just sang Lion of Judah, and we were like singing, yeah. But then I hear lamb, and I go, but you guys, when he talks about Jesus as the lamb, this concept of a sacrificial lamb was very familiar and connected to this Jewish audience. Because this specific moment took place just days before the annual Passover celebration. And the focus of the Passover celebration was the sacrifice of a lamb, which served as a reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from captivity in Egypt. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 12, where God commanded, remember the people are, are in captivity in Egypt and God commanded, this is the final uh, plague here before they're gonna let the people go. And, and so God commanded each family to choose a lamb, kill it and wipe its blood on the doorposts of their home because death was coming and death was going to bypass all the homes 
that had the blood on the doorposts, those homes would be passed over. So as the Jews gathered in Jerusalem each year to remember this incredible event, because after that, that's when Pharaoh let them go. As as the Jews gathered and, and to remember this, each family would bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed on the altar. Lambs were not just sacrificed at Passover. Every day, two lambs were killed at the temple, and even more so uh, according to the sins of the people. So lambs were being slaughtered. Now we go, why, why must lambs be slaughtered every day? Well, all through Israel's history, God had revealed clearly that sin and separation from him could only be removed by blood sacrifices. No forgiveness of sin could be granted by God apart from an acceptable substitute dying as a sacrifice. So their death, these lambs' death, it was necessary because of sin. Blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. Hebrews 9.22 talks about this where it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But God was also clear that none of those sacrifices were sufficient to take away sin. These lambs pointed to the one who would be sent from God to shed his blood one time so sin could be forever forgiven. Forgiven forever. In Hebrews 7, it talks about that. In Hebrews 7, 27, speaking to, uh, to, about Jesus, it says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Guys, Jesus was the lamb sent by God to offer his life as a sacrifice. He's the one prophesied about in Isaiah 53, 7, when it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Guys, the sinner, when you look at just this idea of the sacrificial lamb and, and, and John pointing out and, and using this term uh, in regards to Jesus, one of the things that's so powerful is in those days, who was responsible for the lamb uh, that, that, was, that was killed as the sacrifice for the sins of the person? Who was responsible for that lamb? Well, the, the person who committed the sins, right? So, so if it's my sin, that's my lamb that I'm bringing, uh, whether I purchased it or raised it, I'm bringing that lamb to pay the penalty for my own sins, okay? That's the sacrifice. What, what's so uh, incredible about this is, 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 is the answer to this question. Who brought this lamb to be sacrificed? The lamb we're talking about here. Jesus, who brought that lamb? You guys, God did. God did. God was offering his lamb as a substitute for our sin. I mean, I just want you to think about that for a moment. Guys, we should pay the the pie, the, the pie, I'm still in Thanksgiving. We should, we should be paying the penalty and the price for our own sins. That's how it's supposed to work. Okay, it's my mistake. It's my failure. It's my sin. I bring the lamb. But you guys, God loves us so much that the price you should pay, he said, I'm going to pay. I'm going to provide a way of escape for you. So he sent a lamb 
his one and only lamb who could completely pay the penalty of our sin. Jesus, the lamb of God, died in our place for our sin. He's the only one whose death was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. Only through Jesus can we find forgiveness for our sin. Though Israel desired uh, a Messiah who would be this prophet, a king, a conqueror, God had to send them a lamb. And you guys, they weren't wrong to expect a king, to anticipate a king, because what? Jesus will reign over all the earth. But they didn't pay close attention to the prophets because before the king would ascend to the throne as a conquering leader, he first must lay down his life on the altar. And in Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of what the worship of Jesus in heaven is going to be like. And and, uh, we read that all around him are people singing. And in verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Guys, Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell by sacrificing himself as our substitute. He was the Lamb offered by God for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus fully satisfies the demands of justice. See, our our sin demands a punishment. But Jesus' death fulfills the punishment that justice demands. Guys, we love to talk about how gracious God is, how kind he is, but he is also in the same way. He is holy and he is just. And guys, because of his holiness, we as sinners, all of us cannot come into his presence because those two things cannot coexist. A perfect and holy God in sin, they don't work. They, they, they can't be connected, right? And, and his justice also demands his wrath be poured out on that sin. Like that's justice. We don't like to talk about that justice, but that's justice, guys. But when we look at this as sinners and when we come to terms with that, guys, we're, we're, we're as sinners, the objects of that wrath. That's where we're at, the objects of that wrath. But Jesus, the lamb of God, the lamb that God provided, offered his life on our behalf. And in so doing, he took God's wrath upon himself. So this just, holy God who had to deal with this sin and, and, and who we, because we couldn't do, we couldn't save ourselves, we were the one who made the choices, the decisions ourselves, we couldn't fix that. And, and, and so wrath was coming, but God provided a way, his one and only son, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb came and took upon himself the wrath that you and I deserved. Romans 5.9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Man, how good does it feel to pay off debt? When you think about like paying off debt, that, that final like payoff, it's an incredible feeling, right? Some of you are like, I've never paid off debt. I'm drowning. I'm dying, Steve. But when you have paid off debt, it is an amazing feeling, especially student loans. Man, those things, it just seems like, they, they're never ending. They never go away. They're always there. The number never changes. And, and, and when you pay that off, it's an incredible feeling, isn't it? Guys, we had, a, we had a sin debt that we could not pay off. But the gospel says Jesus covered it. Jesus paid for it. 
I don't have to endure the wrath of God. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Jesus came to take away the sin. It says of the world. It wasn't a localized thing. He took away the sins of the world to satisfy the justice of God. And so our sins uh, are, are no longer held against us. They've been forever removed. Our guilt no longer remains. So you don't have to wear that. We're free from that power, from that penalty of sin. And that's what should uh, move us, immobilize us to live in this freedom that only he can provide. And, and we see then, after stating this, John then states how he is the son of God. This is the one. And, and John gives him his eyewitness account of the spirit descending on Jesus. From the gospels, we understand this took place at Jesus's baptism. In Matthew chapter three, uh, verses 13 through 17, we pick up where Jesus is baptized and it says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Crazy. Heavens open, spirit descends, and the voice of the father, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And John says, I was there. I saw this. And, 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 and not only did I see this, but God himself told me what to look for. God told me what to look for. God, God, God told me that the one who the spirit uh, remains on, that's the one. He goes, I saw it. I was there. I watched the heavens open. I saw the spirit like a dove rest on this dude and stay there. Remain there, it says. And, and, and so I'm, I'm a witness to this. And, and, and it's so crazy when you look at that scene, he, and, and when you look at what he's saying here, he says, man, like I was related to him, but I still didn't know or recognize him as the Messiah. But when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, it became, it became clear. It says the spirit remained on Jesus. The word remained is used in verses 32 and 33. And what's so powerful about this is in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came on a person to empower them, it was for a specific task. It was temporary, yet the spirit remained permanently on Jesus. It says it remained. And when you see it remain, that's who it is. It says that's the son of God the one greater than I, the one that was before me, that I've been telling you about. That's him. That's who you follow. Guys, I wanna, I wanna say this. I love the lion of Judah. I love that term. But don't fall in love with the lion of Judah without remembering that he also was the sacrificial lamb. Or you're gonna miss out on the power of the lion of Judah. What makes the lion of Judah so powerful is because he was the sacrificial lamb. And so guys, don't, don't, don't skip the most incredible part about Jesus and don't try and get this romantic experience in faith without first understanding and knowing the only reason that, that, that literally I should be sitting here going, man, um, I have faith, I have hope, I, I have this peace because of him is because I know I'm a sinner. 
Don't skip that. Guys, forgive us if we ever say, oh, you should just want Jesus to change your life. No, you guys, to be blunt, you and I, man, we've had a lot of issues. We've had a lot of sin that's reigned in our lives and our hearts. And maybe you're like, man, I never verbalized it. I'm, a, I'm the good one. Well, in your mind, there's stuff there. And guess what? When I become aware of that, I become aware of my need for a, a savior. Jesus came and did that. He bought you with the price. God loved you so much, he provided the lamb because he knew you couldn't pay for that. That was outside of your pay grade. He said, so I'll, I'll, I'll bring the lamb because I love you so much. And so we have this opportunity to own our failures, own our mistakes, and, 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 and not live in it. Guys, some of you are living in your failures. You're living in your past. You're living in this anxiety and stuff, and that is not his will for you. That is not his best for you. Jesus came to free us from those things. Don't fall in love with the line of Judah without remembering the lamb. And guys, John's purpose, once again, was to say, look, there he is, and then to testify about Jesus. That's our job if we're Jesus followers. Our job is to continually point to Jesus. It's to continually make other people aware of him, of their need for him. And then as I follow Jesus, I look at what happened here, and I go, man, the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. Now, I'm called to follow Jesus, and so I started just praying this as I was as I was reading this, and I started praying, God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit, it would be evident that he has remained in control of my life and my heart and that he's leading me. There's something to that. The Holy Spirit was not meant to be this situational, um, you know, genie. No, it says the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. That's permanent. Guys, the Holy Spirit, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. The question I have for you is, are you saying, God, I pray that that would be evident. I pray, uh, Lord, that that would be consistent, that, that I would consistently follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, that I would be obedient to that, that I would live in that power, and that it would be evident and tangible to others that, that's not Steve's best. There's something different there. Guys, I pray that for you. I pray that for our church. And so let's move forward well. Let's be excited about what God's doing and let's be obedient to what he asks us to do. Let me pray.